Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Ah, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And tonight's show, I want to help answer, bring on a gentleman to help me answer a question I posed when we started this show. Does our reach exceed our grasp? Or can we use our hearts and our minds, our imaginations to make our reach and our grasp go to greater heights than we ever before imagined? How do we make sense of our technological capabilities. And not just technology in terms of gadgets, but also technology in terms of how we govern ourselves and associate with one another. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on Joe Quirk. He is the president of the Seasteading Institute. Joe, how are you this evening? I am great, Joey Clark. Well, Joe, it is great to have you on because you are really tackling the future. I think you're on the vanguard here. And I find that seasteading is a thrilling project because it touches on so many aspects of of society and who we are as people. And so for folks out there who maybe aren't familiar with that term seasteading, what would be your elevator pitch, so to speak, when they say, well, what is this all about? Well, seasteading is homesteading the high seas. And the uh, technology for politically independent cities that float on the ocean is just about at hand. Um, And once uh, Peter Thiel, uh, uh, co-founder of PayPal, read Patry Friedman's blog, who's the grandson of Milton Friedman, uh, they thought they could bring a startup sensibility to the problem of governance sucking. (laughs) And uh, when you spend as much time in Silicon Valley as I do, you start to notice that the source of sublime solutions is startups. So seasteaders want to go to investors and say, forget startup companies, let's, let's try a startup country. And what if we could unleash the technology for that? Well, that is fascinating, thrilling, ambitious. I want to know how you became interested in this subject. Well, I've always been an author. Um, I wrote novels. I wrote science books. Uh, every book I write is different. I've ghostwritten some books. Uh, and one of the books I wrote was about evolution. It's called It's Not You, It's Biology, The Science of Love, Sex, and Relationships. It's, it's like a funny book about people. And I came to appreciate that uh, the source of progress is variation and selection. Uh, and that's what causes our, our products to get better. That's what causes our technologies to get better. It's even how, where progress in life comes from. Uh, and when I ran into Patry Friedman at Burning Man, in fact, and he described what seasteading was, I thought it was technically possible immediately because I had just been on my first cruise ship right. uh, six weeks before. And I, instead of enjoying myself, I was walking around doing back-of-the-napkin calculations, trying to figure out why is my lifestyle so much better on this floating city than it was on the coastal city I just left yesterday. And my answer was, well, it seems like it, they get to 
do things by their own rules, but I didn't know much else about it. And then when I read uh, Patry's blog, and he elucidated how if you were on a fluid frontier instead of land, and if um, land was disassemblable and you could move your m modules about, if you could move seasteads about, attach to who you wanted, detach from who you didn't like, think of cruise ships that just sort of never dock. Hmm. This would be a form of variation by societies and selection by citizens. Uh, and that revelation, it hit me like a shovel in the face. I just said that would unleash uh, variation and selection in governance itself. And in principle, unpredictable improvements would emerge as long as people had the liberty to choose among them. And you'd have uh, governance providers providing a service, hustling around, trying to attract people to move there. And I've, I've been waiting six years for somebody to explain to me what's wrong with that idea. I, I, think, I think it could completely work. Absolutely. And I love this idea because I find myself these days incredibly frustrated with conventional politics. Uh, as I told you last week, my this show was preempted by a debate for two guys running for Alabama, you know, be the next senator from Alabama in the U.S. Congress. And I was listening to the debate. I've been following the news with it as my job requires. And they are nowhere near to representing me. And this, to me, strikes me as just even a veneer of choice. It's not an actual choice. And the governments we live under really are this patchwork of all these different decisions over the years. And it's very difficult to ever change them and to undock, as you might say, on a, a fluid frontier, as you put it. Uh, I find this uh, remarkable, though... When you, I, I was telling folks about seasteading, I immediately get skeptical looks, like this is a little far-fetched. But I'm sure you're more familiar with the challenges. This is, in fact, what the Seasteading Institute is all about, is tackling the challenges on many fronts. And what's so exciting about it is that it's so counterintuitive. There's an answer to almost any question people can ask. Um, for instance, we plan to have the first small seasteads available by 2020. Wow. And by we, I mean the for-profit company uh, Blue Frontiers, which is uh, sort of a spin-off from the Seasteading Institute. And we signed a memorandum of understanding with French Polynesia. So we're going to start building these hopefully in 2018 and have them available by 2020. Just small floating platforms, maybe about 15 of them, with... Um, special legislation offering them some regulatory and administrative autonomy so we can demonstrate that we can create more prosperous uh, worlds based on liberty, liberty. And then if that succeeds, we can add more platforms, people can move about, we can take uh, steps out into deeper waters, we can uh, negotiate for more freedom on sort of these incremental profit-making steps to the high seas, basically selling free jurisdictions to people. And you'd be amazed if you just announced to the world, hey, free jurisdictions for sale. Every type of innovator comes racing to you saying, hey, if you could get me you know, a floating hospital 12 miles off the coast of L.A., this is what I could do. So there's so many innovators out there, and they're not solving problems by voting for one of two politicians in any particular state. We want to provide them the platforms to create their own little governance startups, 
And as long as customers can choose among them and leave them if they want and join them if they want, then we think the best solutions uh, to governance will emerge. Absolutely. And again, folks, we're talking to Joe Quirky, is the president of the Seasteading Institute. Check out their website, seasteading.org, seasteading.org. Now, in so many ways, governments are holding back from the innovations we're already on the cusp of. And so we, as you're putting it, we need to innovate when it comes to governance. Y'all have laid out eight great moral imperatives. I would like to begin with the first one because I think a lot of the other things we solve come from this uh, first imperative, enriching the poor. And y'all have pointed out in the experience of, well, some other island nations that there's been incredible enrichment in just the last half century. Oh, it's been uh, astounding. And uh, my co-author, Patry Friedman, he comes from this interesting uh, legacy of, of libertarian thinkers, starting with Milton Friedman, then David Friedman, and then it's very compelling because now Patry Friedman's trying to find a practical, physical application of their ideas. But Milton Friedman was quite eloquent uh, about Hong Kong. Yes which was this little island and peninsula that uh, was just sort of, you know, through historical accident that I won't explain here, basically Chinese culture administered under British common law. And it had enough economic freedom that it rocketed from extreme poverty to extreme prosperity in just a few decades. And it was right next to uh, hardline communist China. And it set such an example that China didn't just invade it. Uh, China watched and learned, and the example of Hong Kong did much to inspire China to experiment with special economic zones, uh, which quickly proliferated all over China. And now, since China has allowed more economic freedom, uh, at least a half billion people have escaped extreme poverty. And the book goes into detail about Singapore, uh, the Cayman Islands, um, there's all sorts of little island examples, uh, Mauritius uh, off the coast of Africa. And the, since then, more than 4,500 special economic zones have proliferated across the world as nation states seem to be acknowledging that we don't know how to govern things from the top down. Let's allow more freedom and liberty in these little special zones that will make more money that we can tax more. And so this trend that I think of as sweeping the world is what seasteaders want to continue and take further. And we'll, we're going to countries, coastal countries, that already have special economic, economic zones on the books. And we're saying, we'll bring our own land, give us even more freedom, and we'll demonstrate even more prosperity. Uh, and this is how we're going to send seasteads out into the half of the world's surface that is unclaimed by any existing nation state. Well, and this is remarkable because, say, some weird community in Nebraska wanted to declare independence and be their own enclave. I would be all for that. I would hope they would adhere to certain principles of liberty and economic freedoms that would allow for them to be prosperous. But they probably, being in the middle, just a little enclave in this uh, huge country, they wouldn't have the same advantages of being on or in the water. There are just simple benefits, correct, from being able to trade easier, transport easier when you're on the ocean. Yeah, I predict that in a couple of decades, people living in seasteads are going to say, 
Well, how did places like Chicago trade? I mean, they're in the middle of a continent. What, they have to truck things around? It, the, the ocean is the, is the superhighway of goods. Um, and f- among the things that places like Hong Kong and Singapore have is they're right in the middle of uh, trade routes. Um, and 90% of all international trade occurs not among bordering neighbors, but across vast distances on ships. So it's very easy to move huge uh, cruise ships about on the ocean. I always like to say it's easier to move something the size of a skyscraper across the ocean than it is to move your house to the next town. Absolutely. And, well, in this country's history and experience, uh, very blessed with all the waterways and tributaries around the nation allowed for trade to be so quick in the continent. But you're you're absolutely right on the, the oceans. And another advantage, and I like the idea that you're going to host governments. You're sort of saying, we're going to make this worth your while. It's a deal. Uh, good for you, good for me, win-win. But are you thinking that... Why would the government want to give up that space? Uh, let's talk about, for instance, curing the sick. There is an example you give where the, I believe, the FDA cracked down. And so the guy moved to the Caymans. What was that uh, particular medical procedure? Uh, I think there, there are many of them. Right. Uh, one of them has to do with uh, 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 a knee healing procedure. Hmm. Uh, where a guy found he could take um, uh, stem cells out of your hip, uh, inject them in your knee joint, and you would spontaneously uh, grow the the ligament back without needing any surgery. And he was trying to get this. Uh, he, he, I think he had uh, over a thousand procedures with something like 500 patients with no ill effects. And then all of a sudden, uh, the FDA raided him and uh, declared that the the stem cell once taken from your hip and spun in a centrifuge and propagated is now a drug. So they were redefining people's own cells as drugs now and that they needed to regulate it and he needed to follow all these rules that were written in the 1970s. So one of the big problems with monopolies on governance is that more rules accumulate but none of the old rules go away because there's no variation There's lots of variation with no selection. So some of the people most aggressive (laughs) banging on our doors saying, where is my seastead, are medical researchers Mm -hmm. um, and healthcare providers and physicians and people like that who want to find a place where they could do it better, faster, cheaper, um, and compete with the uh, pharmaceutical companies that have the system kind of locked down. Well, and this has happened so quickly. I mean, how long has the Seasteading Institute been in existence? The Seasteading Institute was founded in 2008. Okay. Uh, I didn't even hear it about it in two, until 2011. Uh, I think the, the word was coined by Patry's partner, Wayne Gramlich, maybe in 1998, when they were just sort of, he was sort of theoretically, you start to look at the confluence of all these technologies, and you realize floating cities uh, are could be possible in the, in the decades ahead. Um, and then he started thinking about it. And these would be homesteading the high seas. These would be, since no nation claims 45% of the Earth's surface, you could conceivably declare your floating island its own sovereign nation. Well, and they were projecting 
uh, like 2050, but as you said at the beginning of the show, there's an actual project that is going to occur by 2020, you're projecting. Yes, we are hoping to, Blue Frontiers, the startup company, is hoping to settle upon uh, legislation uh, with French Polynesia and France, hopefully by the end of the year, uh, this year, uh, hopefully with France soon after that, and uh, we're going to absorb the risk of failure. That's what makes it seductive. Hmm. If it goes bad, that's on the seasteaders. If it succeeds, the prosperity is shared with people on shore and with the jobs we'll create, things like that. And then you get to be known as the nation who's pushing forward this new technology. And the exciting thing about French Polynesia is that they control an area of ocean the size of Western Europe. Wow. A lot of it is shallow water. There's a lot of atolls and natural wave breakers and lagoons. Uh, so all the little stepping stones to going to the high seas are present in French Polynesia. Well, and I almost feel like I'm not playing a devil's advocate well enough because I, I'm so fascinated by this. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are basic questions people are thinking of, like, what, you know, what about storms? Like, we just had hurricane season and people saying, oh, maybe we shouldn't civilize uh, Florida. Maybe that was a huge mistake. Uh, we should have told the Army Corps of Engineers and private developers, careful Icarus, before they went down there and built all these, you know, water. Do you find that people's skepticism is just a lack of uh, dreaming, or they just haven't taken the time to really do the work y'all are doing at the Institute? Because there are legal challenges, engineering challenges, financing. I can't even imagine how much money this will cost just to do one CSTED. Well, uh, if you provide, uh, there are people willing to invest in the chance for a new jurisdiction to do something new where you could host all the most pioneering innovators all in one incubation hub. Uh, we've already uh, raised our seed funding. And uh, so when I first heard about seasteading, uh, I had all the same questions. Um, and the more I researched and the more I talked to seasteaders, the more I was astonished to find that there are answers to all these questions and that so many of the questions come from the fundamental assumptions we bring to what it means to live among people and the fundamental assumption is always that you're on land. Um, so one of the things, uh, well, certainly waves, uh, a very important challenge. Um, the seas can get very rough. Yes. Um, oil platforms uh, are on the high seas sometimes in very rough waters. They're very expensive, but some people live two weeks out of every four on these floating cities that they refer to as floating cities. Um, and if you put enough ballast deep below the ocean floor, um, not the ocean floor, excuse me, the ocean surface, you can create something you know as stable as a fence post in 40-foot waves wow. uh, if there's enough weight down below. So in some cases, um, it's safer to be on the high seas than it is to be on a coastal city, especially with regard to tsunamis. Uh, if you're out uh, on the high seas, you don't even notice a tsunami because it's a long, elongated wave. It doesn't become uh, hmm. dangerous until it reaches the land and it starts to break and roll, and then suddenly it becomes a, a destructive force. Well, uh, another... Oh, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, you can ask any question you want. Um, there, there, are, there are so many of them. Pirates is another one people bring up a lot. Oh, pirates? 
Mm-hmm. This is where I kind of wanted to play this game with you because I'm so enchanted by this. I don't. I'm not sitting here trying to you know tear it down. But yes, I, I suppose you could have an issue with piracy. How would you provide self defense for these seasteads? Well, first of all, there's a, a huge uh, industry of security for the hundred thousand ships that are on the sea right now. Um, and matter of fact, you don't have to pay such high insurance premiums if you provide a security team on your ship. But if you're thinking about pirates themselves, um, piracy waters are less than 2% of the world's uh, oceans, I figured out. And, uh, they, and the oceans are more than twice the size of all the land on Earth. And most of the piracy occurs around the Horn of Africa, hmm. off the coast of Yemen and Somalia, really unstable regions in the world and some in Indonesia. But most of the oceans don't have any pirates at all. And I always say, like, uh, uh, imagine living on a seastead and people saying, well, how could you live on land? I mean, there's Somalia and Yemen and all those criminals there. That sounds so dangerous. You can't <laughs> live on the land. Right. And the oceans are more than twice the size of all the land. So if instability off the coast of those countries, the, you know, it, it shouldn't make you fear all oceans everywhere. Absolutely, and actually a concern, of course, with hurricane season, and I, you know, talking to actual climate scientists, I don't know how warranted it is when you pick any particular weather event, but, you know, there is a concern about climate change, but seasteading offers sort of a a way to live in balance with nature, to be more sustainable with our energy and production. Yes, Uh, well... First of all, our immediate project in French Polynesia is going to directly uh, address sea level change. Uh, many of their, they're worried about losing a third of their islands in the century ahead. Mm. And um, a lot of these uh, islands are in need of, you know, you can't build breakers. It's much easier to simply float. So I think uh, a lot of Pacific Island nations will be transitioning into floating nations uh, very soon. But also, um, seasteading requires us to rethink all of these assumptions. So if I think of myself, I live in Oakland uh, near San Francisco in California. Uh, And if I think of the the farms and the food that is needed to support me and how that food is made, it's based on corn, wheat, and soy. That's what's fed to the cows. It makes the fat slightly less healthy. It causes all this nutrient pollution to run off into the ocean which causes uh, algae blooms, which are very bad for marine mammals, and I wrote a whole book about that. And so you just think of cities as being destroying the environment and polluting the coast. But if your city floats, you can actually uh, have cities that are uh, environmentally restorative and restore the coast, especially if your food is no longer based on corn, wheat, and soy, but on the much healthier algae and seaweed uh, that is already scaling up. Um, and it's in a lot of the foods we already eat. Uh, algae products are in our uh, peanut butter. It's, it's in our beer. Mm. Uh, it's even in sausages. It's in our toothpaste. It's in our coffee creamer. Um, and uh, some of the aquapanures, I call them, that I feature in my book, want to scale up uh, mass seaweed farms uh, on the ocean to uh, absorb a lot of this nutrient uh, runoff could also lower the acidity of the oceans, which is a huge uh, problem. And if we um, 
to make a long story short, if we actually scale up uh, mass seaweed farms on the ocean uh, to feed 9 billion people in 2050, you would uh, pretty significantly absorb lots of carbon uh, from the oceans, which would also absorb it from the atmosphere, and you could uh, reverse the acidity of the oceans. And that's on the very large scale. But on the short scale, yes. um, we're going to do this with our floating islands in French Polynesia at the very beginning in the early 2020s. We're going to have platforms that provide shading, that provide a home for sea life. So most of the oceans are pretty much a lifeless desert, but if you provide something solid out there, you can host ecosystems basically with your city. This is a remarkable and very refreshing conversation, I have to say, Joe. Again, folks, we're talking to Joe Quirk, president of the Seasteading Institute. And I say refreshing because so often people look at the wealth of the world today, the capabilities of the world today, and they say to themselves, hmm, the way we solve this is by giving more control over to those monopolies you were talking about earlier, governments, uh, that we need to control people's lives, whether it's redistributing wealth in this or that way. And coming up after this break, we can talk about how maybe certain CSEDs will have different uh, legal models. But before we hit this break, Joe, I told you before we came on air that I do always do an album of the day. And I've been this hipster lately, getting back into vinyl records. And my roommate ordered one, The Magic of the Internet. He's a big Rush fan. Surprise, surprise. It's not a cliche for libertarians at all. And he got the album Hemispheres. And... This is the end of an 18-minute track, Hemispheres, and it actually seems to fit with our theme today, how people built cities and then went back to the forest and realized we can find balance with the heart and the mind. I guess Neil Peart wasn't thinking of the ocean. So this is the end of Cygnus X1, and coming back, we'll continue to talk with Joe Cork, president of the Seasteading Institute. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Stay tuned. If our goals are all the same Clark. Uh, welcome back to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest this evening is the president of the Seasteading Institute, Joe Quirk, or we'll just call him Joey Quirk, Quirk and Clark, upon your suggestion, Joey. Um, <laughs> I'll see you at the next meeting, too, um, of, of all the Joeys. It's a great name. Now, this song that's playing is again off Russia's Hemispheres. It's La Vila Strangiato. Uh, if I'm saying that correctly at all, but it's literally the strange city. Now, that was due to Alex Lifeson's nightmares, but imagine you are on your own strange floating city, but it's more of what you imagine, what you dreamed, and you want to take some time to relax. What piece of music or what album do you put on, Joe? 
I would put on uh, my favorite album, which is uh, The Sound of Ocean Waves. Oh, wait, I wouldn't need that if I was on the ocean. <laughs> I have to find a new record. Oh, wow. Yeah, we wouldn't you even know, need it. I love Rush, and I love Yes, and I'm so happy you're playing this uh, on this show, but I guess it is appropriate, given Neil Peart's early lyrics. But yeah, these choice music you're playing. And I really didn't plan it that much. I, I swear, my roommate ordered it online. He's just a huge Rush fan. So this worked out. It's a it's a happy... Maybe there aren't such things as coincidence. Uh, but I, let's move in this direction. I actually had a call during the break, Joe, where he said, we're essentially treating the ocean like a huge landfill or dumpster in many ways. Uh, with the Fukushima... Uh, nuclear issue in Japan. They were dumping a lot of radiation and, and into the ocean. I've heard about the huge, you know, what is it, the trash island that people talk about. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've gained perspective, and maybe before even working at the Seasteading Institute, that how how wrong, how ignorant this is, that we're wasting the potential power of this of the oceans. Yeah, it drives me crazy that uh, everybody's talking about going to Mars out here in Silicon Valley, and we're completely ignoring two, more than two-thirds of the Earth's surface, uh, that, in the words of Neil Sims, uh, the fish farmer featured in my book, we're treating it like a toilet. And we don't, we don't see it, we don't look at it, so we can throw our plastic into it and our toxic waste and allow all our, just all the food we eat um, when we excrete that, so much of it just runs off into the oceans. And it's a real problem. Uh, and if the oceans are your backyard, you can't do that anymore. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of people uh, working on the oceans to find ways to uh, clean up the plastic. I don't know if that's uh, so solvable, but Boyan Slat is a young uh, uh, Dutch entrepreneur who's on it. Um, and... Um, if we could scale up uh, ecosystems and uh, sea crops on the oceans, we could significantly uh, reverse many of these effects. And I would definitely point people to uh, my book to learn more about the people who plan to do that. Well, and again, folks, seasteading, especially from the little bit I've, I've learned, it's not an exercise in self-indulgence. It is, in some ways... A personal passion, I'm sure, of yours, Joe, but it is about helping society in general. And one of the moral imperatives you'll lay out is ending war, essentially. Now, I'm sure there'll still be human conflict, uh, but we don't have to have these massive wars between uh, nation states. How could seasteading help in this endeavor? Well, that was uh, Patry Friedman's original formulation, you hmm. know. Nation states are monopolies based on military control of land. And then everyone in there is basically owned by the nation state. So it's an amazing uh, incentive structure for the accumulation and centralization of power. Uh, I think human beings just don't do well with power. They're not virtuous enough for it. And they certainly don't have the intelligence to hold power and then uh, you know, impose their plans on other people. And Patry realized that if land was disassemblable and you could move it about, it'd be very hard for any tyrant to get a foothold. And the essential idea of seasteading was it would pre- prevent this monopoly of power from forming. And you'd basically have uh, service providers providing governance rather than government 
governance. And there's plenty of precedents for this, uh, you know, among them uh, uh, cruise ships. You know, when we sit on a cruise ship, we're not arguing about who our politicians should be or how our kids should be taught in school. We have uh, essentially a captain who's essentially a dictator who's hustling as hard as he can to provide the best possible experience for us uh, because we can leave and go somewhere else. So we have a market of governance provision out there among the fastest growing travel industry in the world, which is the cruise ship industry. Now imagine if cruise ships never docked and people lived out there permanently and could move about and choose the governance providers they want. Well, and quickly get a better world. And you have a graphic here, and y'all work some, with some amazing artists, um, where you're almost thinking of these sea studs being modular, like you could, as you said earlier, undock, and you could dock with a different stud. And I'd imagine there would be uh, different standards in terms of laws that would people would want, given what the mission of a given sea stud is. Yes. Uh, consider that Virtually all the artists that have made all that stuff for us have done so as volunteers. I mean, seasteading wow. inspires so many different kinds of people. But yes, you think, think of seasteads as like your iPhone with nothing on it and your governance idea as an app. And you could have thousands of seasteads offering different types of governance. And they would rely on people choosing them. So people would have to move to them and attach to them. Um, and if they didn't like it, they could go somewhere else. So if your app didn't work, you'd go bankrupt. Your, your capital would be sold off to someone else who thinks they have a better idea. And we have, I spent a lot of time today on the phone with uh, legal scholars, legal innovators, lawyers, uh, many of whom are very interested in taking the best practices um, of legal jurisdictions around the world and instantiating them on a seastead especially on our uh, floating island project in French Polynesia. Um, and uh, probably our main legal innovator, the designer of the sea zone, the next step beyond the special economic zone, he's coming out with a book next year called um, uh, From Na uh, Your Next Government? Question mark, And the subtitle is um, From Nation States to Na Stateless Nations. Mm. So he's already foreseeing that the world is moving towards this world where people have choice among lots of different polities. Well, and again, I'm I'm enchanted because, you know, earlier, I believe last week I had on Gary Chartier, um, and he was, you know, talking a little bit about sort of a market-based anarchism and, and certain principles of governance as he would see them. Um, I've had on folks like Jeffrey Tucker, and we're all we're thinking in terms of land. We're thinking in terms of, of history and how you reform the current governments. But this frees up so much room. And in my own experience, you know, I hear people you know, locally here, Joe, Montgomery, Alabama, say, oh, the public schools used to be so good. And I actually believe them, that when the public schools were first started, when those people who started them took the initiative to go and set them up to find good teachers, to figure out how we should zone the neighborhoods for each school. I'd imagine they worked pretty well at the local level. But over time, over the last half century, Montgomery schools have deteriorated and they haven't been able to change with the times. And so I'd imagine Seasteads would allow change and keep the entrepreneurial, or excuse me, the aquapreneurial spirit going. It would always be a, a constant process. Yes, there, there's a whole section 
in the book, uh, largely derived from Patry's papers, about how the American frontier was sort of like pre-steading. Yes, I mean, a big part of the reason that so many governance innovations and so much prosperity emerged in the United States is because of federalism, is because people moved across this frontier and founded uh, new polities and then had to find ways to attract people to move there. There's a whole humorous section in the book about how very few women went out on the uh, American frontier, and that's largely what drove some of the frontier territories to provide women the vote, which became the innovation that was eventually legalized in the U.S. in 1920. But the U.S. was founded uh, on federalism. Um, but because governance based on land is such a monopoly, and it's a, it's a monopoly based on violence, it just gets more and more uh, uh, sclerotic. The word. I hate, hate to use a obscure word. More and more gummed up. Hmm. More and more, little ability to change. So the fabulous schools we had decades ago are expensive. They're getting more expensive. They're getting uh, worse. But uh, and there's like small numbers of, administ- uh, of uh, administrators who are in charge of deciding. Well, are your kids going to have religious teaching? Are they going to have evolution teaching? Why do we have to fight about this? Why can't we have a diversity of schools serving a diversity of families? Uh, and many people interested in getting uh, onto Seastead are educators that think they can do education better. As a matter of fact, after this phone call, I'm going to go meet with one for dinner. Oh, wonderful. Um, so, yes. Uh, so we work at the Seasteading Institute wearing T-shirts that say, uh, Stop Fighting and Start Seasteading. Hmm. Um, and when you realize that so much of what we fight about emerges because we have this monopoly of governance and there's a one-size-fits-all that's imposed on everyone, and we all sort of know that whoever gets control of the government is going to make the people who disagree with them do what they want, that's what causes us to argue about all these issues. If we didn't have one government um, imposing its will on everybody at once, we would have interesting intellectual debates about our values as opposed to fighting with each other over who's going to control the state. Absolutely. And it is it is about technology in the sense people think of, you know, engineering and gadgets, but the technology of our thought, of our governance. I'm a big fan of the work of uh, Deirdre McCloskey. And I oh, think, yeah. uh, you know, her idea of the seven key virtues, I suppose it's every time I start listing, I'm setting myself up for failure. But I guess it's prudence, temperance, courage. Y'all are showing a great deal of courage at pursuing this sense of justice. And, of course, the Christian virtues, faith, hope and love. And I find that when we do sink back to the individual level or to a local community level, it is easier to discuss and talk about these values. And I completely agree with you that when I look at, say, the United States today, I look at maybe problems in foreign policy among the monopolies of governance in the world today, it is because they're fighting over who can force whom to live a certain way rather than discussing and persuading one another. And so I hope that folks out there who have heard our conversation in the local area have been inspired. At least some of them have been inspired. If they have been so inspired, how can they get involved? How can they learn more or even try to join a CSTAT? The most extraordinary people are pioneers, and the project in French Polynesia is just 
attracting people of the highest caliber and character. And I and I stand by that statement. So if you go to bluefrontiers.com, uh, bluefrontiers with a hyphen, uh, you can see uh, our community there. We have probably 60 volunteers, maybe more, working in 12 working groups on engineering, on public relations, on blockchain technology, on governance. And they're really uh, exceptional folks, and it's a burgeoning and growing community. Uh, so if you want to get involved immediately, go to uh, bluefrontiers.com with a hyphen. Joey Clark and Joey Quirk, we gave you just a glimpse of what seasteading is all about in this conversation. If you really want the big picture, you should check out uh, the book yes. uh, co-written with Pottery Freedom and myself, which is called Seasteading. And folks can find that on Amazon, all sorts of places, I'm sure. Yes. And there's also that video series that you've referred to, The Eight Great Moral Imperatives of Seasteading. Uh, so it's eight short videos, each about five minutes long, about an aquapreneur featured in the book. Okay. Well, Joe, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, and you're right, we just touched on uh, some of the basics here. There's only so much room in an hour, really 40-minute conversation to get things done. Um, but I appreciate uh, you coming on our airwaves tonight. And to end on a lighter note, you mentioned that you love Rush. So do you you go with, say, moving pictures, or do you go with 2112? Ooh, I'd probably go with moving pictures. But I like a lot of Rush stuff. Maybe, you know, the first half of their career more than their second half. But they meant a lot to me when I was a teenager. And it was long before I discovered uh, the philosophy that uh, Neil Peart was elucidating. I'd never heard it anywhere but there. But uh, it, sort of like the embryonic liberty lover in me was captivated by uh, Neil Peart's lyrics. One of the greats. My opinion. He he really was, and I just I found that I was at a, a crossroads in college, which wasn't that long ago, about nine years ago, and I randomly picked up the Fountainhead uh, and had no idea who Ayn Rand was, and then within a few months, I find Twenty One Twelve by Rush, and I'm like, man, I've I've been so impoverished, and I I feel like as I get older, Joe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to continue to say that. Why didn't I discover this yet? Um, but it was a revelation, and I really love the idea of how art could make people look beyond, that you don't have to just look at your given situation, that you can think beyond just this world. And really, when I look at the seasteading institute and look at your website, this is, it's like the future happening before our eyes. So it's not only technical and uh, a very much a theoretical thing, it is actually happening, and dare I say it is beautiful. It's, an, it's almost like art. Yes, and you know, you had Jeffrey Tucker on your show. I would not have been exposed to him if it wasn't for the internet. And what, there's no stopping a true idea once it lands on the internet. And so now young people are really um, getting exposed to these ideas of liberty that I didn't get exposed to until midlife. And they're just racing uh, to the Seasteading Institute and to Blue Frontiers. So I think uh, a good thing is happening out there in the world. Well, absolutely. Well, Joey Quirk, 
It has been a pleasure to get to know you. Um, just a little bit here, and I, I don't want to keep you from dinner uh, too long here, so I hope you have a great night, and thank you again. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience here? I, I really appreciate your questions. They brought out the best in me, and I expect to see uh, some members of your audience on the Blue Frontier by 2020 in Tahiti. Oh, that is the hope. That is the hope. Maybe I'll be there myself. That would be great. I'd love to meet you face-to-face, Joey. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. You have a great night. All right. Thank you. Well, again, folks, that is Joe Quirk. He's the president of the Seasteading Institute. Go to their website, seasteading.org, or look up Blue Frontiers, as he suggested. Enrich the poor, cure the sick, clean the atmosphere, feed the hungry. Live in balance with nature, power the world in a sustainable way, and stop the wars. This isn't just some dream, though it did start as a dream. This isn't just some theory, though it started as a theory. Our reach does not have to exceed our grasp. We can, in fact, imagine a better world, and if we put our minds together... If we balance our aspirations and our imagination with our reason, our rationality, and our know-how, we can achieve great things. People like Joe Quirk, and you might have heard so many people from all over the world, from China to Holland to here in the United States, from all the United States' different cultures, were able to come together and make these dreams happen. Now you might be thinking, well, doom and gloom has always been our destination. Well, no, it hasn't. Amazing things have happened in the last 200 years. And though there have been, well, steps backwards with the world wars, though there have been steps backwards with the old-time religions, not a knock on the wisdom of our religions, but with the old-time superstitions coming back around race, around disagreements on things we cannot prove. We are continuing to move forward. So just know that as we move forward, what got us here was, in many respects, our liberty to speak as we wish, to think as we wish, to associate with whom we wish, What got us here was ingenuity and courage mixed with a love of our fellows. What got us here were markets. What got us here were everyday people striving and heading into the beautiful unknown. I will try to bring on more guests in the weeks ahead, like Joe Quirk. But I have a feeling... It's going to be difficult to top Mr. Quirk and what they're doing at the Seasteading Institute. But we will certainly try to continue to amaze. And I will certainly try to continue to amaze myself. And then you also have to exercise a little self-indulgence. So will you help build the new strange cities of the future? That's the question. Thank you for listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Be sure to go to Facebook, like my page, the Joey Clark Radio Hour, for news, what I'm thinking, and upcoming guests. 
Everybody have a wonderful night. Joey Clark.